What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. This is the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Hey, do you have a question about the Catholic faith? Maybe you're trying to figure out what does the Catholic teach? What does Catholic Church actually teach? Because I'm hearing this from somebody that I work with, and I'm hearing this from somebody at the grocery, uh, but what does the Catholic Church actually teach? We can help you with that. Here's our phone number, 833 833- 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can always uh, send us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Have we got a show for you. We are coming to you live from the 2023 EWTN Catholic Radio Conference. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Well, I'm doing great. How are you, my friend? I'm very happy. I'm always excited to go to the radio conference and see new and old faces from around the country. Isn't it just fun? It's a lot of fun. It really is. And I'm very encouraged because it's it's one thing to to connect with somebody, you know, like an affiliate that you've known for five years, 10 years, 20 years in some cases. But it's also very exciting to see young people who are very excited about their faith and their role in Catholic radio because we, we do not want Catholic radio to be a one one generational thing. Well, you know, when I when I have the privilege to meet people that are involved in Catholic radio, not not these are not people that work at EWTN, you understand. These yeah. are people that, that are out in your communities. They're 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 managers of local radio, radio affiliate radio stations all over the country. They uh-huh. have their own operations. They they are the most mission minded giving people I think I have ever met. Yeah, they they've literally given their lives, their talents, their treasure to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Catholic Church, and uh, and they're just wonderful, wonderful souls, and I love to be with them. Fantastic. We hope to hear from you today at eight three three two eight eight EWTN. That's eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. We're going to lead off with this question from Ian. Hello, Doctor Anders. While visiting a f- friend who was a dyed-in-the-wool Calvinist, he expressed a belief that every person must make a determination of how much a human life is worth monetarily. Is there anything in Protestant or Calvinist doctrine that addresses this viewpoint? And even better, what would be a good Catholic response to this belief? Thanks for all you do, Ian. That is the craziest thing I have ever heard in my entire life. Isn't it? I mean, I don't even—that's just bizarre. Yeah. And and it, it strikes me as a as a just an obscene, almost blasphemous category mistake. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, here's the Catholic response. The Catholic response, I think, is best stated by by Thomas Aquinas, who said that the good of grace in one soul is of more value than the entire created universe. Mm. One soul. The good of grace in one soul is wow. of more value than the entire created universe. Wow. So that's where we have to leave it. 
I mean, really, right? We have so, to leave it there. And as to whether there's anything about that in Calvinism, no, absolutely not. Calvinism, while I am not a fan of Calvinism and I'm not a fan of Calvin, doesn't include that. Although I will add as an aside, kind of as a tangent, that, that John Calvin himself did some creative economic thinking and uh, is actually the first Christian theologian in history uh, to, uh, to justify loaning money at interest. Hmm. So there's there's something to the um, you know the association of Calvinism and capitalism. <laughs> well, there you go, Ian. Thanks so much uh, for your email. Here's one now from Brian, who says, "Dr. Andrews, our priest starts every mass having us repeat a phrase not found in the missal. He will say, God is good, to which we are supposed to say all, all the, the time. time. Then he will, and then he says, and all the time, to which we are expected to say, God is good." Yeah. So this is not part of a homily. It's not part of the Mass. Is it permitted to insert phrases into the liturgy in this way? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Uh, I, I, I know priests who do this, and, and they're endearing and wonderful people, and they mean it, you know, from the, the, the depth and sincerity of their devotional yeah, hearts, right? Yeah, um, it's, it's not in the It's not in the Missal. It's not in the Roman Missal. It's not part of the Mass. Um, uh, now... You know, technically, I would say um, if it, if you if you do this before you begin the mass, that would be totally unobjectionable. Yeah. Um, you know, once the mass is started, you're not you're not really supposed to add stuff. Um, but uh, this is fairly harmless. Okay. It's not like you're messing with the words of the Eucharistic prayer. You know, and, right. I mean, it's, and it's not uncommon at all for priests to add a devotional prayer at some point, like the beginning of their homily. I mean, very often they will, uh, uh, they'll say, let's all pray the Hail Mary together, that sort of thing. And, yeah. and really, I mean, it, it's fairly harmless. Bigger fish to fry. Yeah, yeah. I know that the priest at our church begins his homily by saying that. So that's right, 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 right. Which is fine. Safe which is ground. fine. That's safe ground. Yeah. Very exactly. good. Here's a quick question from Kathleen. My relatives complain about the difficulty of finding a Latin mass. They did not think I was clever when I suggested that early on the mass was in Greek, and when the switch was made to Latin, there were probably Catholics complaining about the difficulty of finding a Greek mass. <laughs> Good point. Uh, my relatives tell me the Mass was always done in Latin and that prayers in Latin are more likely to be answered than prayers said in any other language. Any comments on that? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So th- this kind of uh, reason to attend the Latin Mass, there may, uh-huh. be, there may be legitimate reasons to go to the Latin Mass, but the belief that God will somehow be more responsive to your prayer if you say it in Latin is superstitious to the extreme. Sure. Right. I mean, there, there is a criterion for efficacious prayer given to us in the Bible, that is that is uh, the prayer of the righteous. Mm. Righteousness is the is the criterion of efficacious prayer, and righteousness knows no linguistic boundaries. Yeah. Right. So that I mean, the reasons that people legitimately might want to seek out a Latin Mass is well because they're attracted to the form and they think that it's beautiful and reverent and. Uh, you know, they, they, they may be attached to the community and so forth, and uh, they prefer the lectionary, they, they, they prefer the prayers as they're written in Latin. There could be all kinds of reasons, and none of those are normative reasons. They're, they're private preferences. I mean, the ordinary form of the Mass is the ordinary form, the one that's sure. the authorized form. 
Um, but uh, but this kind of superstitious attitude that only the Latin Mass is efficacious or only prayers in Latin get through, that's just that's superstition. All right. Thanks so much for your email. In a moment, we'll get to David in Genoa, Ohio. Call now for Call to Communion. Stay with us. It's called a communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for David, 833-288-3986. We'll get to your calls in just a moment here. Let me tell you about something uh, wonderful now available from EWTN's religious catalog. I think this would be a fantastic Christmas gift for some little girl. It is a Mother Mary plush doll. You can meet the Virgin Mary, Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God. It is handcrafted from super soft plush, standing 10 inches tall. This Mother Mary plush doll is sure to become your little one's favorite companion. Cradling the baby Jesus, Mary dressed in classic blue and white. It has embroidery details on the crown and face that make this piece even more of a treasure. And you can also check out other plush doll styles available now at EWTNRC.com. Get started with your Christmas shopping early. I know I've already purchased a couple of items for somebody I know. Uh, By the way, all these 10-inch plush dolls come tagged with the feast day and patronage information. They are washable, safe, and non-toxic. Available right now from EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. All right, if you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Here is David in Genoa or Genoa, Ohio, listening on the Great Annunciation Radio. Hello, David. What's on your mind today, sir? Good afternoon. Um, Can you tell me when a thought becomes a sin more than a venial sin, if at all? Ken, I appreciate the question. So, um, it's not thought as such. You know, it's not, it's not having an image in your mind or holding a concept or a proposition in your mind uh, that's, ever, that's ever sinful. There's, there's no moral relevance as such attached to such, to such things. Uh, uh, moral culpability atta- attaches to acts of the will, right? And so that's when you make a determination to pursue a course of action. Now, that course of action could be entirely internal, right? I could pursue the course of action, for example, that I might allow a purian image to, to stimulate me in unhealthy ways, right? Um, but it's that determination of the will. It's that choice that where you have that, even if it's only a smidge of freedom, you have, you have this moment of, of freedom where you can say yes or no. And it's in that moment of freedom when you consent to, to a temptation and make a determination to do something that you know is disallowed, that's where moral, moral relevance attaches. Um, you know, many people who have, say, lived a wild life will yeah. have their mind absolutely filled with memories of immoral activity. And just the way our recollection works, you can't avoid sometimes that something triggers you when those thoughts come to your mind or some image comes to your mind. Yeah. Um, that's not sinful. The fact that you hold an image or a thought or a proposition in your mind itself is not, is not sinful. It's when you make that determination of the will to pursue a course of action that it's sinful or not. Okay. Is that helpful for you, David? Uh, yes, if I could just follow up with, and I guess I was looking at more of, uh, in my mind, say, hatred towards somebody or, or my, my, you know, my dislike towards somebody. 
Let's talk about that. So, so irascibility as such, uh, you know, to kind of feel, uh, you know, a, a visceral opposition, uh, and maybe even to, to, to have like a temptation to wish the destruction of something that you feel is opposed to you or to some value that you hold. That, that irascible appetite, um, uh, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, is a perfectly natural part of our cognition. Right, and it's it's it, it would be impossible to function as a biological organism without it. Uh, you know, it's the you know the mama bear reflex, as it were. Yeah. And that that's it's normal. It's actually good and healthy. If you didn't have it, you wouldn't be able to survive biologically. Um, and so, you know, if somebody offends me, if someone wrongs me, if somebody perpetrates an act of injustice against me or my family, the 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 reactive response to to rise up against that. Uh, to want to destroy that offense is not in itself wrong. Uh, where hatred, like uh, where hatred, becomes morally problematic is when I, I, I intend to do harm to another person in a way that is not proportionate or justified. Right. So it's yeah. so it, like in, in our current civilizational structure, for example, if somebody robs my house, my desire that the police arrest him. And, and hold him accountable, that's not hatred, right? right that would right. be a proportionate response. Sure. If I go out seeking that person's destruction for its own sake, out of a sense of vengeance, that would be problematic. Okay. David, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We're coming to you from the 2023 EWTN Catholic Radio Conference here on uh, EWTN Radio this afternoon. Got a lot of our affiliates, uh, really from all over the United States, come here to uh, kind of network and uh, find out best practices to make sure that these radio stations stay on the air and thriving. Let's go now to Jack in Tampa, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Jack, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, Hi there. Um, I used to listen to you guys all the time, and uh, I I heard you guys on the radio about calling. My question is, how can the Catholic Church claim to have the truth if there's no, like, empirical evidence for, like, the resurrection or miracles or the existence of a soul or pretty much anything supernatural? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So I'm sure you're aware the Church actually distinguishes the kinds of truths that it makes, makes claims to, and there are some kinds of truth that can absolutely be known uh, without reference to the supernatural. They can be known uh, through natural reason. And the existence of God is one of those, uh, provided you understand what the Catholic Church means by God. So there are things that the Church says about God that certainly cannot be proven, but there are things about God that can be proven. And God, God as the first principle, the, the ground of the world's intelligibility, for example, that, that's, a, that's something that there are profound philosophical arguments in favor of. Um, you know, again, depending on how you understand the word soul, I would argue that you can you can prove the existence of a soul. Uh, classically, the soul just means whatever it whatever it is about a living organism that makes it to be alive. Okay. And so on that on that definition, I mean, by definition, plants have souls, animals have souls, mice mm. have souls, amoebas have souls because they're living. Um, and the way Aristotle understood that was that there is a kind of structural functional organization that a living organism has that a corpse does not have. Maybe hard to put your finger on exactly what that is, right? <laughs> that, that would be a job for, for biology and chemistry and so forth. 
Uh, but there is, but that there is such an organization is, I think it's the most empirically obvious thing about life, right? Now, it becomes a little bit more complicated when you're talking about human souls because we make claims about human souls that we don't make about animal souls, that they're not merely material. Um, and there, again, I think there are some pretty profound philosophical arguments uh, for the immateriality of the human soul uh, based on the nature of human thought. Uh, I mean, essentially from abstraction. I mean, if you if you introspect a little bit about the nature of abstract thought, mm-hmm. we are in touch with with abstract entities that seem to have real purchase on reality, that have universal properties that no concrete particular has, right? And so it's very difficult to account uh, biologically or philosophically for how universal concepts could inherit in a particular medium without some sort of universalizable aspect to it that we would call immateriality. Now, to to go from immateriality to immortality is another stretch, um, and uh, uh, it's an inference. Uh, but as you know, the whole Christian doctrine of eschatology, including the resurrection, I would see to you. You can't you can't prove that. So there are things that we can have good philosophical and historical arguments for. The things that we can't. Uh, when it comes to the doctrines that we can't prove philosophically or empirically, as you put it, uh, the Catholic position is that sometimes it is reasonable to believe something on authority if the authority is trustworthy. Okay. And, and uh, you know, for example, if my wife calls me and says, you know, I need you to, to go pick our child up from school. I can't get there this afternoon because something's come up. I have a doctor's appointment or whatnot. I don't have to verify that through some kind of scientific reasoning to ensure that my wife is telling me the truth and I really have to go pick my kid up. In fact, the morally responsible thing for me to do in that moment is to rely upon my wife, who is reliable. That's Mm -hmm. actually the right thing for me to do, even though it's not the sort of thing I can prove empirically. So there are cases in life where relying on testimony is is the appropriate thing to do. Now, you know, when it comes to making a decision about how to order my life, uh, there are questions that that no one can answer with empirical certitude, uh, but I can, but I can, but I can make an estimation based on uh, what I can introspect about human flourishing uh-huh. uh, as a rational organism, and I can look at the kind of influence that the Catholic faith has had on civilization. Um, the example of the saints, um, uh, the the human dignity and the way it's, uh, it's propagated itself uh, in law and, and, and custom throughout the Western world, the Christian world, um, knowing that those things are derived from a faith in Christ and, and the idea of the incarnation and man-made and God's likeness and image, and I can make the decision that this is a reasonable way to live because it's the, a way to live that accords with my own rational flourishing and that of my mm. civilization, without actually being able to know with, say, mathematical precision that every proposition of the Catholic faith is is true, right? And even then, like, what do I mean by truth? So, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, there's a discussion of the category of dogma uh-huh. uh, that describes dogmas as lights, L-I-G-H-T-S, right? That the dogmas themselves, the propositions themselves, are not the things that we're ultimately oriented towards, but rather the realities to which they point. Um, and in this case, that would be the reality of the the rational intelligibility of the world and the primacy of love. 
Cardinal Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict, gave a speech one time at the Sorbonne, to you know, the French university, to a largely secular academic audience on the topic of the truth of Christianity. And, and uh, it's a long speech, and it's well worth reading and considering, but it, it, in his mind, it kind of boiled down to the fundamental truth that we really are proposing to the world is these two things, that the, that the world is intelligible, which at some level can't be proven, but it does function as a kind of presupposition for every act of rationality. Sure. I mean, we could live in the matrix. Right? The world might be absurd. <laughs> There's no way to disprove that. You know, Descartes' evil demon. Mm. Uh, the rationality of the world... And then this one you can't prove either, but it makes an enormous existential difference to your life, the primacy of love. Yes, yes, indeed. And we thank you so much uh, for your thoughtful question there, Jack. Appreciate that. It's called a communion here on EWTN. We have a couple of lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Mary Jo is in Grand Blanc, Michigan, listening on the great Ave Maria radio. Hey there, Mary Jo, what's on your mind today? Mary Jo? Mary Jo, are you there? Tell you what, why don't we put uh, Mary Jo on hold? We will come back to Mary Jo in just a moment. Let's go now to uh, John, a first-time caller in Pittsburgh, listening on RadioCatholic.com. John, what's on your mind today, sir? Um, Yes, I read an article earlier uh, today about a Stanford neurobiologist who just published a book in which he claims to have disproven uh, the existence of free will. And I wonder what a Catholic response uh, to such a claim might be. Yeah, yeah, thanks. So um, there is Robert Sapolsky is a uh, biologist I know who who has just recently published a book uh, where he claims it's called Determined that that tries to refute the doctrine of free will. I don't know if that's the book you were talking about. Could be he's not. I don't think he, he may be a neurobiologist. I'm not sure about that. Okay, maybe it's another book. So, um, in my judgment, most of the debates about freedom, but free will, boil down to a definitional issue. What do you mean by freedom? And within the Catholic faith, there is not, believe it or not, there's not a normative definition of what we mean by free will. So that's a, it's a doctrine of the faith that we have free will. Yeah. But when you ask Catholic philosophers, what, is exactly, what exactly does that mean to have free will? You will get different answers from different Catholic philosophers. Really? Yeah. Really? So famously in the, in the scholastic period, Duns Scotus has a very different understanding of human freedom from Thomas Aquinas. Hmm. Scotus would be associated with more what we would call libertarian free will, which is the idea that the that the will is a kind of, uh, um, you know, sort of like a free-floating faculty that is not determined by anything, but it just has a sort of radical ability to orient, orient itself any old way possible, hmm. period, right? right? And yeah. if you ask, well, for what reason, what grounds it, what, the answer is nothing. It just chooses that's what it does. Wow, and I think when when many people talk about free will, that's what they have in mind. They have a libertarian notion of free will in mind, which, quite frankly, I find difficult to swallow. I I think that's hard to defend philosophically, in my judgment. Uh, Thomas's idea of free will is rather that free will is the um, the ability to rationally deliberate between objects that have been conceptualized as good. Right, and so, for example, I, I use this illustration all the time. Let's say I'm walking down the boardwalk at the beach, uh-huh. and, uh, and I hear somebody crying out, and they're drowning. They've fallen in the water, and they're drowning, and they've done it right in front of the pizza stand. 
and I smell the pizza, and I conceptualize the pizza as a good, yeah, and I recognize the life of the drowning victim as a good, yeah, and I, I'm also able to recognize that they are hierarchically valued, of course, such that the person in the water is a higher good than the pizza, and I forego my desire for pizza in order to go save the drowning victim. Sure, like sure. For Thomas, that's freedom, my ability to do that. Now, Augustine points out, St. Augustine, that you might be so depraved in your, in your desires and your passions that you prefer the pizza. Hmm. And in his mind, what grace is, grace doesn't give you libertarian freedom. It gives you the ability to act in accord with what reason says is the hierarchically ordered good. That, that's a harder definition of freedom, I think, to refute with, with biology or, or neuroscience. John, thanks for your call. Lots more straight ahead on the Thursday afternoon edition of Call to Communion. Do stay with us. It's called Communion with Dr. David Anders on this Thursday afternoon. We are live from the EWTN Catholic Radio Conference here with all of our wonderful affiliates from coast to coast. Fantastic uh, meeting them, talking with them. It is a blast. Let's go back to the phones now and talk with Heidi. Heidi is a first-time caller from Titusville, Florida, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Heidi. What's on your mind today? Hello. Um, I was wondering if you could explain the line in the creed he will come to judge the living and the dead. Aren't, aren't um, yeah, already, already? Okay, absolutely. Appreciate that. So, um, in St. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4, he, he talks about this exact thing. And he says, I, I don't want you to be uninformed about people who have already died. And there was a concern in Thessalonica that if you died before the return of Christ, you missed out. Right, that only those alive at his coming were going to participate in the benefits of the resurrection and the glorious kingdom to come, which gives you an idea of how soon they thought the second coming of Christ was. Yeah. They thought it was right around the corner. Yeah. You know? yeah. um, and Paul says, no, no. Um, w- w- those of us that are still alive when Jesus comes back are not going to precede those who have already died. But when the Lord comes back, he will, uh, he will, the dead in Christ will rise, and, and then we'll all be uh, taken up to join Christ in the clouds. And so the, the church's teaching is that at the second coming of Christ, we anticipate the resurrection of the dead, the, the bodily resurrection of the dead, and the future judgment of everyone, right, according to their works, and the, the, the righteous and the wicked. So uh, judging the dead means at the resurrection of the dead. Okay. Is that helpful for you, Heidi? Well, I'm, well, that makes me, no, it actually makes me more confused about people that are in purgatory, because when they rise, does that mean that there's a chance they go to hell? No, okay. So in, purgatory, in waiting eschatology, there are actually two judgments, and I didn't mention that because you didn't ask that question. You asked about this line in the creed. Uh, there is a particular judgment that takes place at your death, um, and that's, you know, then it's heaven, hell, or purgatory. If you're in purgatory, you're saved. Your, your salvation is assured. Okay. Now, also, when you get to the general judgment, the judgment at the end of time, the resurrection, um, judgment can mean well done, good and faithful servant. Right? Judgment is not a bad thing. It can be vindication. Hmm. So the souls that are currently in purgatory, the, the judgment on the last day for those souls is going to be well done, good and faithful servant. They're saved. Right? They're saved. And if you're in hell in the interim period, the judgment for you on the last day is going to basically validate 
the condition that you've been in now, you yeah, know, and it's yeah. not going to be happy for you. Okay. Appreciate that. Heidi, thanks so much for your call. Let's go to Marco now, a first-time caller in New Brunswick, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey, Marco, what's on your mind today? Oh, thank you for taking my call. I've been listening to your show for years. I absolutely love it. Um, actually, funny enough, the, the book, um, Catholic Answers and Catholic Questions, helped me return to my faith. Uh, nonetheless, yeah, my question is around um, doing works as opposed to faith alone. Uh, I, our, our parish priest a few weeks ago did a homily that spoke a lot around uh, the works that we'll do as followers of Christ and so forth. And, and I've read uh, the Bible several times in comments about uh, the works we do and the works and the works. Uh, being judged for our works, uh, and I, I'm confused why why the Protestants don't necessarily see or don't see works as value in its faith alone. And I'm hoping you can put some light on that for me. So it, it would be false to say that Protestants see no value in good works. That's that's not true to their position. Let me give you the Protestant position. It, it's grounded in Martin Luther's exegesis of two books of the Bible: the Book of Romans and the Book of Galatians. And in those books, Paul says that we are justified by faith and not by works of the law. That's what he says. He says it straight up. And, and Luther interpreted that text this way. He said, well, works of the law means any kind of moral action, any kind of moral action at all. And so for Luther, God declaring us righteous has nothing to do with any moral behavior on our part. And if it doesn't have to do with our moral behavior, then, then on what basis would God declare us righteous? And mm. Luther's answer is that what God does is he imputes righteousness to us. Uh-huh. He credits us as if we were righteous for Jesus' sake, even though we remain objectively sinful and hateful to God. Mm. And he used a metaphor. He said it's like, it's like a dung heap covered in snow. Right? You, in, intrinsically, you're evil. But God regards you as if you're lily white for Jesus' sake. And that's what the atonement of the death of Christ is meant to bring about, according to Luther and according to Calvin, that by his death, Christ is punished for our sins in our place. And in turn, his righteousness is imputed to us. So, so if that's your position, if you're a Protestant and you hold that, then it's not that, it's not that you shouldn't do good works. It's just that they don't figure into God's judgment as to whether or not you get into heaven. Right, that, okay. that they they may figure out in other ways, but not in that way. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, the problem with Lutheranism and Calvinism, and there's many problems, but at root is that they radically misunderstand Saint Paul. That's not what Paul meant when he said that we're justified by faith and not by works of the law. He does not mean that our moral behavior has no effect on our justification. That's not what he's talking about. Uh, works of the law in this context, refers specifically to the things that differentiate Jews from Gentiles. So the question that Paul was answering wasn't, how do I get into heaven? It was, who counts as a member of God's covenant community? And the the sort of classic, or if you will, orthodox Jewish position was, God's covenant community are literal descendants of Abraham and and those who have joined that community through circumcision. And, and agree to keep the, the whole Mosaic Code. Okay. That, that's how you get into the club. And, and Paul's position was, no, Gentiles become heirs of Abraham through faith. So, so through faith and baptism, you get into the club. Okay. Right? And, but, but when it comes to the question of, you know, do I go to heaven when I die? How does God assess me at the end of my life? Paul's very explicit. He says the value of faith is that with faith comes the gift of the Spirit, Hmm. And the Spirit actually changes your heart. 
and gives you a different nature. So the law is no longer just written on tablets of stone. Now it's written on human hearts. And the one who has the gift of the Spirit fulfills what Paul calls the righteous requirements of the law. That would be to love God and love neighbor. So you don't have to worry about the circumcision and the laws of Kashrut and what can you eat and who can you marry, that kind of thing. It's rather, does, does, is God's love in your heart? And that's the basis on which God judges us, right? So the one who, as Paul puts it, by patient endurance and doing good, seeks glory, honor, and immortality to that when God will give eternal life. So the, the whole problem, with the, the misunderstanding with Lutheranism, boils down to Luther not understanding what Paul was really talking about. Now, uh. this is not just my private opinion. Uh, if you will look at the kind of the leading 20th century, 21st century Protestant biblical scholars, uh. Protestant biblical scholars, they come to this conclusion. F- famously, uh, N.T. Wright, uh, who hates it when people say this about him because he, <laughs> he's not a Catholic himself, and yeah. it bugs him when people become Catholic after reading N.T. Wright. But I can't tell you the number of people that have read N.T. Wright's works about Paul and said, oh, Luther was wrong. The Catholics are right. I'm becoming Catholic, right? <laughs> um, Christopher Stendhal, another Lutheran biblical scholar, taught at Harvard University for many years. His book, Paul Among Jews and Gentiles. Uh, James Dunn, E.P. Sanders. Um, uh, there are some, there are some uh, uh, Jewish New Testament scholars like, like Paula Fredrickson and, uh, and, um, and Pamela – oh, I forgot Pamela's last name. I'll think of it in a minute. You will. Uh, yeah, uh, all in this, in this uh, school of thought. And uh, so, so it's, not just, it's not just Catholics that are saying this. Protestant scholars like Alistair McGrath, uh, who acknowledge in his massive work on the history of the doctrine of justification – that, that Luther's understanding was a complete novelty, that he made it up out of whole cloth, that nobody for 1,500 years had interpreted Paul the way Luther was interpreting him. Uh, recently, there was an interesting dissertation that turned into a, a monograph uh, by Matthew J. Thomas entitled Paul's Works of the Law in the Perspective of the Second Century Reception. And, uh, and uh, Dr. Thomas argues, I think convincingly, that the earliest Christians, the very earliest Christians in the second century held the understanding of works of the law that I'm propounding, right? That they didn't read it the way Luther read it. They, yeah. they see it the way the Catholic Church yeah. sees it. So this is the Catholic position is natural to Paul, uh, makes sense in its context, and, and has been the understanding of the text that's been commonly held for 2,000 years, right? And, and there's a story behind where Luther got his ideas from that I won't go into because I'm kind of running long now. Basically, Luther just kind of made this stuff up and nobody before him believed this way. All right. And we hope that's helpful for you. Marco, thanks so much for your call. Dr. David Anders, you'll get a kick out of this. <laughs> Tonight on The World Over with Raymond Arroyo, Robert Royal stops by with an update on this week's action at the Synod on Synodality. Also, Father Robert Sirico shares his new book, Pell Contra Mundum, and N.T. Wright. How about that? N.T. Wright is going to be on the program tonight talking about his new book on St. Paul's Romans. That's tonight, The World Over with Raymond Arroyo at 8 p.m. Eastern on EWTN television and radio. So earlier in the program, we had a connection with Mary Jo in Grand Blanc, Michigan. Uh, We had a little phone problem there, but she called back. Mary Jo, what's on your mind today? Yes, hello. Um, I had some family members be able to go to a church where St. Jude Relic was being um, exposed, or I don't know how to correctly say that, but one of the things they were told was St. Jude is a cousin to Jesus. Did Mary have siblings, or um, where, where would these cousins 
have come from. I've never, never heard, heard of them. So uh, in the Gospels, we read about a woman who was named Mary, the wife of Clopas. And according to tradition, Clopas was St. Joseph's brother. Hmm. And so Mary, the wife of Clopas, would have been the Virgin Mary's sister-in-law. Okay. And that would make uh, Clopas's children Jesus's cousins on Joseph's side. But, okay. you know, legally, obviously, yeah, they, yeah, they wouldn't yeah. have had a biological connection there because right. he wasn't the son of Joseph. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so there you have it. So does that make sense to you, Mary Jo? Thank you for that. Thank you very much. Our most welcome called communion here on EWTN. Uh, still enough time for your phone call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Uh, Braden in Baton Rouge called, called in and asks, Dr. Anders, I was talking with a Protestant about Peter being the rock, and upon this rock, Jesus would build his church. So my friend said that the rock upon Jesus said he would build his church was actually the statement that Peter made and had little else to do with Peter. Other than pointing out that people don't talk like that, clearly naming an antecedent and using that pronoun with a completely different and unknown antecedent, how do I explain the church's understanding of this pericope? Yeah, thanks. So first of all, uh, you're you're not wrong to go to the grammar. Right? The grammar of the sentence is, is is fairly obvious and determinative. Sure, sure. And and the only reason you would resist it is because you 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 want to resist the Catholic interpretation for ideological reasons. Now, interestingly, when I was in seminary, I, I went to a Protestant seminary that was very anti-Catholic, and there was a professor at the seminary who was also very anti-Catholic, but very well known in evangelical Protestant circles. Still mm-hmm. is today. His name is D. A. Carson. Okay. And uh, he wrote an article that was published in the book Great Leaders of the Christian Church by Moody Press, edited by John Woodbridge. And he wrote an article on St. Peter. And, and in that article, D.A. Carson, anti-Catholic evangelical biblical scholar, concedes that within the context of Matthew 16 that Jesus is talking about Peter. Because you, you can't make sense of the grammar any other way. Yeah. And interestingly, I, I heard John Woodbridge, who was my professor, told us that after Carson published that, he, he once received a manila envelope in the mail filled with ashes. <laughs> and that a fundamentalist who read the book was so offended they burned it and then wow. sent him the, the, the treatise. You know? wow. So, I mean, that, it, it, it didn't go over well. Right? No, no. Uh, but grammatically, that's what, that's what the text means. Now, what Carson did, and he's not a Catholic, of course, couldn't stand Catholics, was, um, uh, was to say... Okay, but that doesn't imply the rest of the whole papacy thing, right? Yeah. You, you need more than that to justify the papacy in his mind, and that's the way a Protestant scholar would do it. They would concede the grammar, but go, yeah, but you got to prove all this other stuff, you know. Mm. Um, uh, in addition, I would say that uh, beyond Matthew, the other Gospels also indicate something like this conversation, although the language changes, which to my mind strengthens the case for Peter's for Peter's authority. So, um, in uh, in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Christ calls Peter aside and says, you know, you have, to, you have to strengthen the brethren. It's your job to strengthen the brethren. In the Gospel of John, he calls Peter aside and says, you have to feed the sheep. To feed the sheep. Uh, Gospel of Mark, of course, goes out of the way to indicate that Peter is the first apostle called and kind of the head of the college, if you will. Uh-huh. Uh, St. Paul acknowledges that Peter, James, and John are those reputed to be pillars. Right? So uh, in all of the Gospels, Peter appears at the head of the list and is the, the inner circle of the inner circle. So there, there's definitely a Petrine 
um, primacy that's mm-hmm. conveyed in one way or another yeah. throughout the whole New Testament. And, of course, sacred tradition is really unanimous about this. I mean, in, in antiquity, when people debated the question, you know, which patriarchal see has primacy uh, through, its, um, uh, through the apostle with which it's associated, there was never any dispute that Peter was the man. He was the man. So, you know, there you have it. There you go. Braden, thanks so much uh, for uh, checking in with EWTN Radio's Call to Communion. And uh, let's go right now to Paul. Paul's in Saginaw, Michigan, listening on the great Ave Maria radio. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today, sir? Yeah, gentlemen, uh, Jesus Christ made this statement when he was in the temple. And he said in John chapter 2, verses 19, 21, that he was going to rebuild this temple in three days, even though it took 46 years to rebuild. But we know that he wasn't talking about the physical structure. He was talking about his body when he, his death and resurrection in three days. So, but we know that God does not lie. And we know the second temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. And we know that a thousand years is to uh, uh, God is to a day as a day is to a thousand years. So is it possible that that second temple could be rebuilt in the year 3070 A.D., which would mean the uh, last uh, days of the end times would be around that time? Is that that possible? I appreciate the question. So the Catholic position on this is that there is no eschatological significance at all to the question of the rebuilding of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Okay. And the book of Hebrews is extremely explicit that mm-hmm. temple sacrifice as a way of relating to God is eliminated and, and, and obviated and is useless. There's no point in that anymore. Um, and so there are a lot of fundamentalist Christians and some Orthodox Jews mm-hmm. that would like to see the temple rebuilt to reinstitute sacrifices, but that has nothing to do with the Christian faith. So, you know, I mean... I don't know what's going to happen in history. I mean, some religious party could could decide to make a you know building project, but it would have no relevance to to biblical eschatology. And to sort of undergird that, if you read the the visions that Ezekiel has of the reconstruction of the temple, it's pretty clear that Ezekiel is talking about an eschatological temple in the kingdom of God. He's really talking about you know one humdinger of a temple. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not what what existed in Jesus's day yeah, because he yeah. has a you know a vision of. Uh, you know, like a river flowing out of the temple that that it will have these fruit trees growing on the side of the river that never wilt, they never fade, they give fruit every month that heals people and all this kind of stuff. I mean, this is this is like sci-fi temple. You yeah. Know? And um, uh, well, when the Book of Revelation takes up this imagery from Ezekiel and Zechariah and this this apocalyptic language, it's pretty evident that the author of Revelation is not not looking at a physical structure. He mm. uses the metaphor of a physical structure to describe what is essentially the church, founded on the pillar of the apostles. And so Catholicism has always spiritualized those Old Testament apocalyptic prophecies and seen their fulfillment in the kingdom of God, which is not of this world, and Jesus says is among us, and we look to a spiritual and not a, and not a carnal sort of fulfillment to that. So uh, this expectation of a physically rebuilt temple really has no part in, in the Catholic faith. And I think ultimately it's kind of harmful to uh, well, certainly harmful to geopolitics, sure, right? Yeah, I mean, like sure. the, the, this is this is just not where we need to put our emphasis. 
And very good. And uh, Paul, thank you so much uh, for your call. Glad that you're checking in from Saginaw. Interesting question here from uh, YouTube. Michael Peace uh, posing this question. Can a priest and or deacon begin a homily with a joke? The question is, can they tell a funny one? <laughs> Everybody's a critic. <laughs> right. Exactly. I, I'd say it's uh, probably two-thirds of the time of the homilies that I've heard, this is, it seems to be the modus operandi. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're, they're permitted to, to be sure. Okay. Right. I mean, whether it's advisable or not really, I guess, depends on their and your sense of humor. Sure, sure. Michael, thanks for checking us out on YouTube today. Here's an interesting one from Cheryl who says, I'm really enjoying the discussion about the role of the elect being chosen to serve others versus personal salvation. So I have always wondered if Adam and Eve would have had children if they had not fallen. I have always assumed no. Can you confirm? Also, I found online a, no a note about this. It references the book Two Nephi. Is this part of the Catholic Bible? I don't see it. Okay, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, yeah, Adam and Eve were, were told to be fruitful and multiply, and, and, and so, you know, sexual differentiation exists for the purpose of biological generation. So, yeah, I, I think we would assume they would, they would have kids. Uh, I don't know the book you're talking about. Two Nephi. Don't know about Two Nephi. Okay, right, very good. Uh, you're going to love this question. This is from Patricia. Dr. Andrews has commented on his enjoyment of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe book. At what age is this book appropriate for children? Um, uh, I, let's see. In utero, <laughs> and it stops being appropriate post-mortem. Okay. In, in my judgment. No, I, I mean, I'm being facetious. Obviously, you know, I remember one time I, uh, I, I tried to read this text with some kids, young kids, who didn't have a habit of literacy in their family. Uh-huh. And they found it very difficult because the language was foreign to them. It was it was not the idiom that they were accustomed to speaking, and that was a barrier. You know, but this is these are it's about British children in, during the Second World War, right? Oh, yeah. Um, but if you have a habit of reading to your kids and 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 they you know can understand it, then I, I you know it, it, in terms of the language, then any age, right? Now, obviously, you know at one level you read this story and it just seems like a delightful little fantasy story, and mm. then you know hopefully you can figure out pretty quick that it's uh, Lewis didn't like to call it an allegory, but it is a Christian themed book through and through. Um, I actually went to a guy uh, went to high school with a fellow uh, who when I mentioned that you know that Aslan was a stand-in for Christ, he's like, "What are you talking about?" Uh, and I explained the the connection between the death of Aslan and the atonement of Christ's death, and he was like, "Oh, I never thought of that." And really. I went, I went, um, you were born on planet Earth, weren't you? <laughs> this, is, this is weird. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and I mean, I continue to read these books as an adult, and I get things out of them today that I didn't get out earlier. And, and there's actually some, some quite deep philosophy in the text. I mean, mm, yeah. there's, uh, we find Platonism and Aristotelianism woven through them in ways that are narrative and subtle, but if you have the requisite background, you pick up on them. By, by the way, our, our producer today, Michael McCall, says that uh, that book that we talked about, Two Nephi, that is a Mormon book. Oh, well, that's why I don't know that one. That's exactly yeah. why. Here's a quick question now from Jay. Uh, in heaven, how will we or can we communicate with people from other time periods? Let's say I want to talk with Mary, any of them there, a lot of them in the Bible. I just, would I have to know Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic, or would they know modern English? Or would we not be able to communicate? Also, will we still be able to learn things in heaven? I love to learn, 
but if the vision of God, uh, we just know everything. Is, is that it? Uh, it seems like philosophy and such just goes away. And again, that seems kind of sad to me. Any thoughts okay, there? Okay, yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So there, there are really two different visions of what heaven is like in the Catholic tradition. And the, the dominant one is more static, where learning would seem to not be on the table because uh-huh. you kind of know everything. There's another one that I actually find personally more attractive associated with the Christian East, in particular St. Gregory of Nyssa. Um, uh, it's called epictasis. That's the Greek word for it. And, uh, and it is the one that's reflected in Lewis's books, actually, we oh, mentioned really? earlier. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's this idea of a kind of eternal asymptotic approach to the infinite where you're always going further up and further in and deeper and deeper in your penetration of God mm-hmm. in this kind of accelerating um, uh, approach, but, but it's inexhaustible. And so there's, there's always a sense of forward progress in motion uh, without ever arriving. Yeah. And um, like I said, that's not the dominant view, but it is a view. It's associated with, the, with you know, one of the uh, classic uh, Eastern fathers. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, in terms of the mode of communication, you know, angels communicate intellectually without the medium of language. I don't know how, but they do somehow. Right? And um, and uh, you know, maybe we will be able to communicate. That much I can tell you. Through what medium? I have no idea. Wow. Maybe maybe the universal translator from Star Trek. It's exciting to think about, though, isn't it? Yes, it is. It really is. In our closing seconds here, I know that we we, we talked uh, recently about the Call to Communion website. Let's talk for a moment about your wonderful book, The Catholic Church Saved My Marriage. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, it is a book. I, I wrote it. You <laughs> it did. Is, it, is, it tells the story of my journey into Catholicism and, and the effect that that had on my marriage, which was considerable because my marriage was in a bad place uh, around that time, and, and it got an awful lot better when I became Catholic. Uh, the book is not a book about marriage therapy, and it's not about marriage exclusively. It really is a, a sort of comprehensive deeply theological account of the difference that Catholicism can make in your life and in your marriage and gives all the reasons that were compelling to me to become Catholic and to accept the Catholic vision of married life. It's a wonderful book. I can certainly uh, vouch for it. I, I enjoyed reading it, and I also enjoyed your audiobook recording of it, which is also available from EWTN. Well, you, you did a magnificent job producing it, and without <laughs> you it would have sounded a lot like... <coughs> Oh, you're funny. Hey, Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday here on EWTN Radio. We do it at 2 p.m. for our live broadcast, Eastern Time. And then, of course, we encore it for you that same evening at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Check out the podcast anytime by going to EWTN.com forward slash radio. On behalf of everybody here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. You have a wonderful day. See you next time here on EWTN's Call to Communion. God bless.